Welcome to Skinny Trees, an exploration of health inequities in and around Chicago, mini episode number one. Hi everyone, we are doing things a bit differently this episode and we're really excited for this one. We had a summer intern, Annika Jageja, a rising senior at Latin School of Chicago here in the Team Simon Lab this past summer and we thought it would be a great idea to have her prep, coordinate, and interview someone for the podcast. So what that became is the interview you are about to hear uh, with Dr. Joe Feinglass from Northwestern University. Dr. Feinglass has a long history as a political activist and educator, spending many years as a community college professor, a former factory machinist, and now here at Northwestern as a full professor, where he is a health services researcher focusing on health access, treatment, and the social determinants of health. We work with him very closely in our lab, and we were really excited to have Annika be able to interview him. You will hear more in Annika's interview, so let's go to the show. So thank you, Dr. Feinglass, for joining me today on this episode of Skinny Trees. Can you start out by telling us what your role is as a health service researcher? Sure. Um, thank you for having me. Um, I, you know, I think it's probably helpful if I say what health services research is about, which is and what the history of it is. And so um, what we do is we look at large electronic databases that began to become prominent in the 1970s and 80s. And I'm thinking back to the origins of our field. What happened was uh, Medicare and other large insurance entities began to put um, claims data for insurance claims on computers. This was like 1970s, 1980s. And then uh, more recently, there's been an attempt to put medical records on computers, where you have what's called the electronic medical record takes what had previously been paper records and uh, creates lots of information that can be stored electronically, including blood tests and um, uh, imaging and scans and so forth, all can be stored electronically. So our role has been to look at those types of sources of data and do analyses on them that are based on bringing into healthcare a lot of the other social science research expertise, like for instance, health economics. Um, we look at um, the economics applied to the healthcare industry. Uh, we look at um, the whole issue of quality and cost of care and delivery systems and how best to make care efficient and patient experiences, survey research is part of it. And so the idea is to look at large data sets and uh, develop an ability to understand how the healthcare system works delivering healthcare. There's an allied part of health services research that is often considered to be public health. So there's this idea of what is public health that has gone back much further uh, that has to do with what we now call the social determinants of health. So this is a different thing. The idea of health of people is a very different thing than the actual health care they receive from doctors and nurses and in the healthcare system. So there's this gigantic industry called the healthcare system. Health services research is primarily about that industry and how it works and what the outcomes are for the patients uh, and what the costs are. Um, the area of public health is more the area of epidemiology, biostatistics, and learning. And so these have kind of become a little bit merged. And health services research draws from both the tradition of the um, health economics and the tradition of public health. So that's what we do is we look at uh, cost and quality of care, how b people's access to care. We look at health policy, which has to do with insurance and the ability for people to have insurance. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I've been doing this now for about 25 years. Wow. 
So what's the next step after you get all the data you collect? Do you like show it to the hospital so they can make improvements? All, all of the above, publish it. Um, it's part of a scientific discourse. So we're academics. We work at a um, university. So there are many people who are more um, working for specifically for a delivery system or for some uh, commercial entity. We are independent of that and do uh, what we call scientific research, which means looking at what's really going on. Now, that may be at a micro level of looking at what's really going on with a particular service to patients or a particular operation or what are the outcomes of using one type of knee prosthesis versus another for total joint replacement. All the way, that's more clinical epidemiology, all the way up to... Um, what's the best policy to insure everybody in the United States, which I personally believe is Medicare for, for all and making Medicare available to everyone. But the uh, idea behind this is that there's a you know, micro to macro level of this whole, uh, I think I'm answering your question. but Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, you did a really nice job answering it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Okay, so I'm 17, and I don't necessarily know what I want to do, what my career will be after college, um, but a health services researcher is not something that I've thought of as a possibility. Um, can you talk a little bit about when you were in high school or maybe maybe college that sure. sparked your interest? So first of all, I have to say, so you're 17. So when I was 17, it was 1968, believe it or not. And um, I don't know how much of the history books go up that far, but that was a very turbulent year in the United States and it had a huge effect on my way of thinking to this day. Um, the biggest thing for my generation was the Vietnam War. And so it wasn't what you actually did in the Vietnam War, whether you served or whether you didn't serve. It's what you thought of the Vietnam War that really divides my generation to this day and divides liberals and conservatives to this day. Uh, and so the issue for a lot of us, and this, again, I wanted to give you the scale of things. In 1968, there were probably about 600,000, 700,000 U.S. servicemen engaged in the war who were from a drafty army of mostly 18-, 19-year-old kids who had been drafted. This is not the professional army that we have now. Fighting in a country that was an uh, extremely small, uh, relatively backwards country using massive quantities of explosives and napalm and defoliants and Agent Orange and so forth and losing this war to a very determined opponent fighting with much less technology and not with B-52 bombers against us. So there was a thought as a high school student at age 17 that this was a moral wrong thing and it became a flashpoint of my generation. At the same time that in, so there was the Tet Offensive, we call it, in the uh, February of 1968, where the Viet Cong, as they were called by here, but the um, National Liberation Front of Vietnam, seized all these cities in Vietnam, attacked the American embassy in Saigon, and almost took over the country, then were fought back in a very bloody uh, series of battles. And we're talking about hundreds of casualties every week, and you're watching it on TV. So you're seeing every night uh, guys being carried out in stretchers and shooting going on, and, and, and you see even things like, torturing of enemy soldiers and throwing people out of helicopters and all kinds of war crimes going on. So the upshot is that you you almost begin to um, have this extremely alienated feeling towards your own country when in April Martin Luther King is shot, who's the head of the civil rights movement. There are riots in every American city. The National Guard is called out and, uh, you know, the Army is called out in Washington, D.C. to protect the Capitol building with smoke rising. You know, there are riots in every major American city. Um, you then have uh, Bobby Kennedy entering the race against Lyndon Johnson saying peace in Vietnam and civil rights and uniting white people with 
uh, black people in a very major uh, upsurge campaign that culminates with him winning the California primary and getting assassinated the same night. So you have this guy who was like Obama was to the generation before me, um, you know, is to you guys uh, getting shot. And then you have Richard Nixon winning the election, which is not exactly Donald Trump. But in fact, uh, Nixon actually does well by comparison to Donald Trump. But, um, but uh, you know, because Nixon actually had done something in his life. Um, but anyway, moving right along, um, it was this huge year where events happened very fast. There was these student uprisings all over the United States and all over the world. There was the May 68 in France. There was the invasion of Czechoslovakia by the Soviets, which also was a big event at the time of where Czechoslovakia tried to break out of communism. And so you have um, that one year affects your entire life. Now, having said that, I've gone through all kinds of different things. You're 17. You're going to go through job, 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 career, career, career. You don't know what you're going to be doing. And it, it often is a phone call that changes your life. That's literally what it was for me. I mean, there's things that happen. So I worked in factories for many years. I spent uh, seven or eight years as a um, uh, machinist and an um, assembly mechanic and uh, worked in factories both in Minnesota and here in Chicago on the west side. Um, I worked as a community college teacher for four years teaching history and political science at Harper and Oakton. Wow. Yeah, and that was a good job for me yeah. coming out of the factory. I liked it, except they didn't pay anything. Um, and so then I got back to school and got additional degrees later in life. And so I, I went to uh, school for my PhD lit much later in life and went at night. So I was working during the day as a teacher, and I'd go at school at night, take one class at a time. You know, it took me many years to get the PhD that way, but it was the best way to do it. Um, and, you know, when you're young, the only way you get ahead is education. Mm-hmm. So you said that when you were 17, like the Vietnam War was affecting everyone. Yes. So what were the mindsets? Or- well, the mindset was if you oppose the war in Vietnam, you're a traitor to the United States. That was the mindset. Oh. So when the Kent State shootings occurred where students were um, protesting, the thought was, why didn't they shoot more of them or use machine guns on them? <laughs> that was the mindset. So there was polarization, as we call it now, yeah. but to a level that's greater than now. Although, you know, I don't know how things are going to emerge. But <clears throat> back then, I mean, there was real view of a, a counterculture youth movement that we were not part of, that this was not, we were outlaws in our own country, mm-hmm. in a sense, you know, and that the government was against us, we were not the majority, and that we would be hunted down and jailed. That was actually, many of us thought was going to happen. Wow. For a few years. Yeah. Uh, things changed. You know, the 70s comes. I mean, we could talk about all the history that occurred. But for very few years there, things were very, uh, we thought anything could happen because it had been happening so fast. Yeah. So it sounds like the impact on the nation is tremendous. It is. And the Vietnam War tore the country apart. And yeah. there was, um, the the army itself rebelled. So what yeah. happened eventually was they refused to fight. There were the, you know, American soldiers refused to go out on patrol. And the orders to go out on patrol, you could get shot as an officer, you know, to order your guys to go out. And, uh, you know, it was got to be where the army refused to fight. And that's when the war really swung is when all the guys came back, Vietnam veterans against the war, other organizations, and really changed uh, the view of the American people about the war was the guys who had been over there. Yeah. Um, and so um, by Nixon kept. Uh, promising he had a secret way to end the war and kept escalating and escalating, it didn't work. You know, mm. and finally they did eventually, as you know, uh, the rest is history. But the um, left two million dead. 
Yeah. So, like, kids around your age, were they really scared of being drafted? Yes. So people were very upset about being drafted. At the time that I was coming up, there was something called the draft lottery, where you got a number that was based on your birthday. Oh. And uh, <laughs> you're, it's 1 to 165. 1 to 365. And so... Based on that, they'd call up the first one to 100 would get drafted, and then 200 when you weren't sure, but you were hopefully safe. Definitely by 250, 300, you're you got, you're definitely not going to get called up. Yeah. So it gave you peace of mind, but it was something in, in, in you know to deal with the protest about the draft. Yeah. Um, a lot of people were going to Canada. Um, I was 356 or something. You know, oh, some wow. incredible <laughs> number. <laughs> but I at that time, you know, a lot of people on my with my mentality were going into the military with the idea of organizing in the military against the war. Oh. I know that sounds crazy, but there were these GI coffee houses and there were people that were really attempting to organize within the military. And there still are. There's the Iraq veterans against the war and uh, there are still people who are anti-war military. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was, it, you know, this was, Vietnam War particularly was an example where it was the poor fighting the war. You know, it wasn't, college students got out of it. They had a deferment. So it was young, working-class people over there, uh, 18, 19-year-old, a lot of minority, a lot of uh, young, working-class white kids that were sent over there. Yeah, so it sounds like you have so much experience in all types of careers, like from factory jobs to yes. teaching. Yes, and, I, and I, I think it was all incredibly helpful for me to be able to feel that you can come into a job like I have here in this office, and I have academic freedom, I can yeah. say what I want, I can publish what I want uh, without somebody, you know, censoring me mm-hmm. and I don't have to punch a time clock yeah yeah so based on all of your experiences and all types of professions um, is there like a moment that sticks with you in history boy um, you? you know again I think it might be good to reflect back that's I, I knew that might be coming and I don't have a good <laughs> answer but I, I was thinking about this yesterday and I was thinking about when I was um, uh, this would be um, in 1974, so I was 23. I went to work at Flower City Architectural Metals in Minnesota and came in as a, un, having no real background in terms of, my parents never taught me how to make things or fix things or build things. So I wasn't pretty, you know, I was pretty uh, just a, a more intellectual uh, kid growing up in the suburbs. And I go into this factory in Minnesota and um, started on the assembly line, which was very brutal, where we were building windows, aluminum curtain walls for skyscraper buildings, and including O'Hare Airport, uh, uh, the United Terminal. Wow. And uh, so, and then they'd ship them out. You know, we, mm-hmm. But it was a routine, repetitive job, really hard, two 15-minute breaks and a half-an-hour lunch, and you're working your ass off the whole day. Um, so at that time, though, there was all these young men from um, my age from – uh, these small towns in Minnesota, in rural areas of Minnesota, who became my friends and got to know them really well, got involved in a lot of things with them, and it changed my life. Had, working in the factory, the feeling of pride of making something. So what happened was I was lucky. I got out of there, got called in to work in the maintenance area in the boiler room. And eventually uh, was in a, you know learned uh, electrical, learned uh, uh, pipe fitting and plumbing, learned how to do um, construction work, um, various different yeah. types of work. Uh, fixed machines, uh, you know, worked on electronic cranes, so forth. Got to move around a lot, learned all these skills, and had a high-pressure engineer's license for uh, Minnesota uh, license for a high-pressure boiler engineer. And at that time, I think my self-esteem was the highest it's ever been in my life. Wow. <laughs> you know, in terms of feeling like I really had accomplished something and I could make something, you yeah. know, and I could fix something and yeah. I could do something with my hands, you know. Now we spread a lot of paper around. 
you know, we write articles and we, you know, hope people will read them. But, but back then we actually made things, you know. So there was an element of really high self-esteem that I had then that I, I remember well from later also worked here uh, in, as a, a machinist and assembly mechanic and building big stamping presses out in the west side. Uh, using, you know, um, working with these 250-ton cranes where you're signaling the guy up in the cab and you're building this gigantic machine with 10-feet flywheels and, you know, so forth. Throwing slabs of steel on a milling machine, you know, that's yeah. <laughs> shaking the ground. That's, you know, and there was an element of it that was like very brutal in terms of the uh, day that you had there, especially if overtime was involved and working in heat. And I remember some of these days when it was not, you know, no air conditioning back yeah. then. It's like 90 degrees in the plant. You're covered with oil and grease and, you know. But there was an element of it that um, I'll always remember those days and the guys I worked with and be thankful that I'm here. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that I'd be as thankful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you kind of touched on my next question, which was like asking what is the biggest motivator in mm. your career. So yeah. is it the sense of? Well, the social justice issues for me have always been the biggest motivator. I was kind of raised that way. For me, it was always like, how do you live a life of service? How do you how do you do something that's going to be moving society forward, our our country forward? Um, and I was raised more of a, um, you know, socially conscious. And what became very socially conscious in the '60s. Uh, plus, by the way, that's also when the women's movement began, and when the whole idea of the role of women in society totally changed from when I was growing up to now. Oh. And so I don't know if you take for granted some of the things that girls can do now yeah. that they didn't used to be able to, uh, which was lots. And so uh, it, so we saw a world changing. We thought it was going to be more just. Uh, I think my generation didn't do a great job of yeah. moving things forward in some areas, but in other areas we did. Yeah. I mean, when I grew up, there were no black people on television. Wow. You know, there was, uh, except for stereotyped uh, characters like, um, you know, Amos and Andy. There were no blacks, none, until uh, Bill Cosby and then later, you know, there were movies that had Sidney Poitier, and that was it. Uh, There was, black people had, uh, it was like not uh, exactly uh, like the South with Jim Crow legal segregation, but Chicago was very similar. Mm. And it has remained very racially polarized city, you know, with kind of Soweto and Johannesburg kind of atmosphere. And, um, you know, I, I grew up, though, where black people didn't really have a lot of the rights and uh, have the ability to do things they do now. And uh, the idea of being gay was considered you go to jail for that. Wow. You know, if you were known to be gay, you would be sent to jail or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think has been, so we know, like, societies, like, the many challenges they face. But how about in your experience? What's the biggest challenge mm. you face? Well, I think for me it was the end of this idea. It's a very good question. I think the, for me, it was this period in the 1970s when we realized, many of us 60 radicals realized that our dreams for like a real utopian change in American society were not happening. <laughs> and that there was a major economic downturn. Uh-huh. People who thought, um, you know, we were kind of like raised in affluence, you know, in the 60s. And we had 3% unemployment when I was growing up and because uh, of the Vietnam War in part. Yeah. But the uh, upshot was that, you know, in the 70s when um, a lot of the industry began to um, leave the United States and big, big areas of the southwest side, for instance, all these highly paid unionized jobs disappear, um, it became a different world. And the uh, idea that we were going to change things real quick, and I had seen this on the college campuses, and I had seen it somewhat in the civil rights movement and somewhat in the women's movement. But, you know, it was just not going to be a fast change. And then, of course, you wind up with Ronald Reagan in 1980. So 
there was a feeling of, um, you know, when Reagan was elected in 1980, very similar to what maybe some people felt here who are liberals felt when uh, Donald Trump was elected. Yeah. And there was this feeling that we were regressing rather than going forward, which mm-hmm. we were. Mm-hmm. And um, and there was this immediate, you know, gigantic tax cut that creates the inequality that we live with to this day uh, under Reagan. Um, and so I don't know. I, I guess so for me, the turning point was having to give up on that zeal for political activism that I had, this feeling of throwing myself into the fight and becoming more private. Uh, I started to have a family. I had kids. I had to figure out a way to make a living. It became more, I became more uh, uh, a family person and just began to, you know, uh, become active on the side more. It didn't become the dominant thing in my life. So again, that's around late 1970s when it dawns on us that change really isn't going to happen fast and you have to adjust to a society that's going to change very slowly. Yeah. So as one of my last questions, how would you give advice to the future generations? Oh, boy. I stay away from that. I hope that you come (laughs) up with some ideas that we didn't have, you know. I mean, I think what we all – so I'm an old socialist, and I said that in the class because I feel like people's warmest moments that they remember as their most happy are with other people, with the other people in their family, their friends – there's an element of human beings getting along and um, appreciating and respecting each other that's fundamental to our enjoyment of life. So the question is, how can we use science and rationality and the ability to think about our situation to improve, uh, to go for a more peaceful and prosperous future? And I, I think you guys have to come up with some new solutions, but I don't think it can be done through consumerism through going to the mall as the end all of uh, one's existence in terms of a bigger house, a bigger lawn, more stuff as the way to achieve happiness in life. It has to be done through some kind of effort to create more human contact with each other. And um, truthfully, I think we have enough goods and services now. Yeah, and enough material. To go around if we shared. And, uh, And so the issue is, um, how do we create that internationally? How do we create that in our own country? And I don't, you know, again, I'm feeling like maybe you guys will have the answers that we didn't have. Hopefully. <laughs> I hope, and maybe people like you specifically, you know, have to think about, well, what is, what is going to be the way this country changes? You know, what is the path that could be realistic? I mean, one issue is, of course, the global warming issue and the ecological catastrophe that we're all facing. And the, um, and the imminent... Um, onset of extreme challenges brought on by global warming, both internationally and domestically, you know, as Florida starts to slip under the ocean. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have to take all those refugees from Florida and figure out where to resettle them. Yeah, there's so many environmental problems. And so the, it, and then how do you get to, a, 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 you know, a, a source of energy that's not carbon-based is a political decision. You yeah. could do that now and create millions of jobs and, you know, so forth. But that's a, quote-unquote, planned economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's been really fun interviewing you today, Dr. Fine. It's been fun for me, too. <laughs> and I want to end this interview the same way all the other Skinny Tree interviews end. So as my last and final question, what is your favorite book? Oh, boy. So I cannot answer that. And I think what I could do is tell you what I'm reading now. Okay. So what I'm reading now that's great, and I'm on page 200, is this amazing book called The Invention of Science. And it's a history book. And it goes to the 1530s to 1700 period, particularly. It goes a little before and after. But the idea behind it is sort of this idea in Europe 
at that time, starting sort of with Copernicus, but also uh, others, Galileo, um, uh, there was this ability to, the dimension of the telescope, but most importantly, the discovery of the new world led people to question Aristotelian, you know, like, we know everything, the ancients were actually ahead of us, the Greeks and the Romans were actually smarter than we are, and, um, and had a greater civilization than we have now. And they began to realize that we didn't know everything already, and there was change in the heavens, meaning, like, there were things that occurred, like, for instance, there was this big... Um, a series of uh, astronomical events that everyone is trying to explain. And Galileo develops the telescope and sees the moons around Jupiter. There is a huge change with the idea that the Earth is a planet. Yeah. And that there's this thing called planet Earth. Now, again, yeah. no one knew this before. Yeah. No one had thought this before. There had been these ancient, ex 1,500 years, there were the same explanations that everything is circular and stays the same. Yeah. And then Columbus, I think, was the big jolt to that and the discovery of the new world. And then there's a series of... Uh, so that's this is kind of like interesting to me because somehow in these Italian cities and in England... They developed this new way of looking at things that totally revolutionizes human history mm -hmm. within a period of about 100 years. Has and they knew it. They knew that what they were doing was revolutionizing human history. Yeah. The guys at the time. I mean, they knew they were opposed to the, the idea that we know everything already uh, was the dogmatic view of the time. Their whole idea was, no, you have to be open to experience. Yeah, so I'll definitely make sure to check that book out. <laughs> and, and, and so, yeah, you, uh, it's a long one, but it's a great history book. Yeah. Um, um, so thank you again for allowing us to chat with you today. Okay. <laughs> I hope I didn't overdo it, but thank you very much. <laughs> this is fun. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and authors and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities. National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, Northwestern Medicine, the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Skinny Trees is proudly produced and edited in the lab of Dr. Melissa Simon at Northwestern University. Melissa Simon is a member of the United States Preventive Service Services Task Force. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views and policies of the USPSTF. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. This podcast claims no copyright to said content.